Uh, in 2008, Pixar released a film called Wall-E that uh, many of you may have seen, but for those of you who haven't, the premise of the film is that planet Earth has essentially been trashed by he the humans, so they were evacuated by this large corporation onto a large Starliner ship, uh, a ship, uh, a spaceship called Axiom. Initially, uh, believing it would be just for a little while, while the robots cleaned up the trash that was left on Earth. And, the humans that lived on this large spaceship are living in a state of constant leisure. They, they float around on these moving chairs that take them on a perpetual loop around the ship. They have these large hologram screens planted in front of their faces for them to be entertained as they eat all their meals through straws. Uh, and they're all morbidly obese, of course, and have no to little bone mass left for their inactivity. Um, uh, and that gives them this baby-like physique. Um, and in one, in one scene that I still vividly remember, a person, uh, one of these people, is interrupted by the robot Wally. Uh, causes him to fall off his moving chair, and he's left helpless. He's kind of squirting, you know, like a, a turtle that's been flipped on his back, unable to get up by himself. And this team of emergency robots quickly uh, swoops in, comes to his aid, and gets him back on his chair, and he continues on his merry way. Um, and, so the, the humans on this ship, their laziness has left them helpless and stuck in this hyperloop of perpetual inactivity with no sense of urgency to their return to, to Earth. And while the initial plan was to return within a few years, they left the Earth on the 22nd century, and the movie is set in the 29th century. So it's 700 years that have passed, um, and they're still in space on this ship. Um, in this perpetual state of quote-unquote bliss. So, and in watching the scenes um, of the humans on that ship, the viewer is left with an odd familiarity in what they see as the potential combination of the trajectory that we're currently on as a culture, um, but also a clear understanding that that is not a wise way to live one's life. It is not a healthy approach to leisure or to work, and they are clearly not doing well as a result. We're going to be continuing our series on wisdom literature today that we've been working on this summer, going through portions of the book of Proverbs to consider God's wisdom for our lives. And today we'll be specifically focusing on a proverb in chapter 6 that is about the virtue of hard work. And we'll be exploring together what it means to work with wisdom. And the chapter itself is entitled practical warnings, so I'm pretty confident that there will be some strong application in each of our lives, whether you are working a full-time 9-to-5 job or a stay-at-home mom, whether you're currently unemployed or a student, this text and this proverb is still going to have some strong application uh, to where you are. To set the stage a bit before we go into the text, I think it's helpful to consider who the audience is here. As you know, King Solomon is the author, uh, known to be the wisest man to have ever lived. Um, but who is he writing this for? Who's his audience? Um, there isn't a strict consensus on this point in the scholarship. Some believe it was written for his son, uh, a prince, to prepare him for being a wise king uh, himself one day. Several chapters begin with my son, so that's a reasonable theory, in my view. Other scholars think it was written not just for one child, but for all of Israel's children. 
either way, um, what scholars do seem to agree is that uh, at least generally it was written for people who have or will soon have some form of responsibility in their lives. So if you are a parent, uh, a leader, if you have control over your own resources, if you have a bank account, for example, or if you're a student, you have forms of responsibility which require wisdom to discern how you will exercise that responsibility. And what is wisdom? This is something that we've been um, chewing on um, uh, you know, in different proverbs so far this summer. Um, and uh, we've learned a bit, um, a bit along the way uh, with each proverb, a bit more, I think, about what wisdom is. Um, wisdom is the ability to see with distinction. Uh, you do not need to be an intellectual giant to be wise. Uh, and I'm sure you can all think of people you've met yourselves who are extremely intelligent, but sometimes lack wisdom in their lives and it lands them into trouble. Wisdom is about the ability to respond to life with insight, foresight, and character. And it is to love God genuinely. And on the most macro level, I think wisdom is really an important guide for determining what it means to be human. And that is a question that I think everyone asks themselves, whether consciously or subconsciously. You see our culture around us wrestling with that question and providing desperate attempts to find an answer worth living for. Life is about being happy. Life is about being rich, as Andrew pointed out. Um, or life is about looking a certain way. From a biblical perspective, wisdom is the answer of what it means to be human and how to be human, namely how to flourish as a human being living in his image. And to flourish means to live as God intended us to live as human beings, in right relationship with God, with our environment, with our neighbors, and with ourselves. I'll just repeat that point. To flourish means to live as God intended us to live as human beings, to live in right relationship with God, to live in right relationship with our environment, to live in right relationship with our neighbors, and to live in right relationship with ourselves. Of course, our efforts are going to be tainted in sin because although Jesus has accomplished victory over death, we remain in the already and not yet dispensation where we continue to live under the curse of sin. However, God continues to call us to live a life honoring him. And he sent us his spirit at Pentecost to do the ongoing sanctifying work of renewal in our lives that continues to draw us closer to Christ and equip us with the ability to reflect his image more and more as we mature as, as Christians. So for those of us that confess that Jesus is Lord over our lives, we remain confident that he has accomplished everything for us. And simultaneously, we continue to seek the Spirit's work of ongoing renewal in our lives as we strive to honor the Lord, our Lord and our Savior, in the way that we live our lives, discerning what it means to flourish as human beings. And it's with that backdrop that I think uh, that we can turn to this text uh, we see in Proverbs 6. And it's, uh, it's printed in your bulletins as well if you have those available. Um, but of course, uh, it's also found in, uh, in Scripture at Proverbs 6, verse 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true, and it is brought to you in love. So how many of you, when uh, when the COVID lockdown initially hit, thought, ah, this will be, this will be all right. A couple weeks of Netflix and chill. Uh, no expectations to see anyone. I can stay in my pajamas. Don't have to do my hair. This is all right. Uh, I know, um, I don't know if the parents among you of little ones thought that, but for the rest of you, this was, uh, this was, if that was you, how long did it take for that feeling to wear off? The appeal of doing nothing or very little is so strong, yet in reality, once we're in that state for too long, we realize that too much of it doesn't feel so great. A void opens in our lives and we miss being challenged. We miss working and participating in the daily rhythms around us. Uh, I had this experience a few um, a few years ago when I had a month off between uh, being done my article in the practical training portion um, for my work and, uh, and before starting my work. Um, so it, it was uh, an opportunity that we had to travel. It was a fantastic um, opportunity. Um, and, uh, but by the time I got through about halfway through the third week of my time off, Brianna and I were traveling, I found myself envying people around me that I saw scurrying to and from work. Uh, it felt so silly. Um, you know, I've been looking forward, uh, looked forward to this break for so long and finally being on this break after, um, so much, so much hard work. Um, but nonetheless, after a bit of leisure, my heart's desire was to be occupied by meaningful work. Uh, and that is part of what it, I think it means to be human. We're not meant to live in this perpetual state of leisure where you are meant for work. We see this in the creation story where God gave Adam the garden to work in, um, even before the fall. And we see it in the life of Jesus who works as a carpenter through much of his, um, his earthly life. Work is good. And we see the siren call to leisure all around us in our culture with promises of blissful happiness if we retire as soon as possible. Or win the lottery and drop the shackles of employment. I've uh, even learned this week that there's such such thing as perpetual cruising, something called uh, snowbird cruises, where people will make a cruise ship their home, never having a final destination, always having their meals made for them, their the dishes done for them, their rooms cleaned, entertainment provided. Sounds sounds a little bit all right, doesn't it? Um, that's that's the temptation, right? It sounds so appealing, but it sounds is that maybe starting to sound a little bit like the uh, that ship the starship from Wally axiom. Uh, and that's not to say that rest and leisure are bad. Definitely not. Definitely not. Here we are in this day of rest. Rest is good. Um, and so what's this text saying about that? What's, uh, what's this text here, this proverb saying? And so one of the things that Solomon is doing in this text is telling us that we can learn from nature, specifically the mighty ant. Uh, now there's a lot of animals in nature that you might have considered could teach you something, uh, some magnificent creatures, but you probably never thought it, the ant was one of them. Um, and the ant Solomon is referring to is understood to be the harvester ant, one that lives throughout 
the Middle East and it stores the grain that it gathers in its nest. Uh, the notable quality of these, this ant, um, or these ants as identified in the text, is that they do their work without a supervisor, with no manager. There's no, no one keeping the ant on schedule, making sure she's not checking Facebook in between trips from the nest back to the outside world. She's just staying on task, um, going about her work. And another quality we see in verse 8 is that the ant prepares her bread in summer, and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, the ant knows when to do what. She knows when the right time is to prepare her bread, when the appropriate time is to gather her food. She doesn't need to be told when or how to work. And the lesson in that pro- in this proverb, therefore, is that uh, about work is that we should labor diligently and faithfully in the vocations that God has called us to. Solomon describes the beauty of work further in uh, another book he writes, uh, he's the author of in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 12, where he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Work is good and it is a gift from God to enjoy our work. And the lesson about rest in this text is, again, that it's not a bad thing. There is an appropriate time for that. There's a season for everything, as Solomon also touches on in Ecclesiastes 3, where he talks about a time for everything. So this proverb is not saying that leisure and rest is bad. The subtext here is that sloth and idleness does not produce human flourishing. We've all experienced the soul-refreshing break, I hope, of a good holiday. Scripture certainly contemplates that kind of rest. God gave that example in the creation story himself where he worked and created for six days and then rested on the seventh day. And as his image bearers, we also have that need and desire to create, to work, and then rest, to be in that rhythm. And the text encourages us to rouse the idol from their sleep, but it is not the sweet, sweet, the sweet sleep of the laborer we see referred to in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 12. Um, And in that verse, it says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Sleep is good. Rest is good when it's followed by diligent work, is what what Solomon is saying here, is what this proverb is about. And so I'd initially gravitated towards this proverb um, because of my interest in the intersection of, of faith and work. Uh, And as many of you uh, who attended our Faith and Work seminar um, this past winter will all know, uh, that's something that I'm interested in. So I thought it would be a good launching pad uh, to discuss how our faith informs our work. But as I dove into the passage um, and eventually um, was able to peel away my presuppositions and assumptions about what this text was saying and allowed the text to read me, I realized that This is not so much about how our faith informs our work, although it it is about that. Um, It is about how our faith calls us to work, calling us out of our inaction into action. And that is actually something that I have been wrestling with uh, personally for for years, um, which may sound strange to, to those of you who know me, who know me well, you know, who know about my work history. It's not to say that I've been 
sitting on my haunches, on my haunches, resting on my laurels, twiddling my thumbs, spinning around in my office chair all day. Um, but uh, but throughout my work, I have been confronted with and uh, certainly succumbed to all too often the temptations of distraction and doing things more pleasurable than the task at hand, than than my work. Uh, whether it's surfing the internet for something I've convinced myself I need or want, or chatting with colleagues, or aimlessly swiping through Instagram or the news, the temptation is there and it is powerful. So this call to action cuts deep for, for me, and I trust it does for, um, for at least some of you as well, as we're all having our attention pulled into a million different directions all at once, constantly. Matthew Crawford is a uh, philosopher um, and motorcycle mechanic uh, and author based out of Richmond, Virginia, who's written a book. Uh, he's written several books, but one I recently read called The World Beyond Your Head. And in that book, he discusses this modern or postmodern dilemma of inattention and distraction. He points out that our attention is considered a resource by companies and they will go to great lengths to get our eyeballs onto their product, employing sometimes addictive psychological tactics to accomplish that goal. He cited a study that followed children through to adulthood over a number of years and discovered that the biggest number one indicator of success in children was not IQ, it was not socioeconomic status, it was not their willpower, but it was their ability to strategically allocate their attention so that their actions aren't determined by wrong thoughts. And that sounds a lot to me like the Christian struggle to live the godly life of wisdom, strategically allocating our attention so that our actions are not determined by wrong thoughts. And I'm picturing a horse here with blinders on, given an intentional tunnel vision in order to focus on the road ahead and continue moving forward in order to accomplish their master's goal. We don't have the luxury of blinders, um, of course, so we need to employ some other disciplines in order to keep us focused on that task ahead uh, in order to do our work diligently and faithfully like the ant. And without strategically focusing our attention on our work, we're forced to make excuses for our inaction and continuously put off our work for tomorrow. And we see that in verse 10 where it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The lazy person described in this uh, verse is continuously making excuses and putting off for tomorrow what should be done today. To which some of you might be thinking, so what? Why does it matter? What if, if I get the work done today or tomorrow? What are the consequences? Well, we've already read that and we see it in verse 11 where the author's warning is poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's some powerful imagery. Um, but what is, what is the author saying here? What's Solomon saying in this verse? Um, and given that I'm not uh, trained in languages, unfortunately, I had, to, uh, I had to use a lifeline. I had to phone a friend. Uh, or text a friend actually, and uh, I, I picked Pastor Paul just randomly um, to uh, to employ some of his 
Jedi Master Hebrew translation skills, um, just to, in order to get to the to the root of this, um, and uh, and he, he obliged. He was helpful, surprisingly. Um, the uh, so the original Hebrew word for armed man is uh, kamalik. I'm probably not saying that properly, but that's uh, and it means prowler. So the armed man personifies poverty and draws us in to see that without diligence of hard work, poverty might seem like a thing at a distance. In reality, it is drawing near like a prowler. And when it does arrive, it will take what it wants. It will overpower you. Uh, It's a powerful force that should not be taken lightly. And we can see the urgency of Solomon's warning here in the poetic contrast being employed, where the ant is diligent and moving, working, but the sluggard is sleeping, not moving, lazy. Poverty moves like an armed man quickly. So this practical warning is not to be taken lightly. It is serious and has serious practical implications and consequences for your life. The an, Another little analogy that I was thinking here, and I'm going to go a little bit off script, pull another kind of Paul Paul move, we'll see how it goes, um, is, uh, um, you know, when you're sitting in a chair and you've got uh, your, your leg folded underneath you, uh, you've cut off the blood circulation, and you think, um, you think, well, that's, I'll just be sitting here for a few seconds. I'm not going to move. I like this position. Um, but of course, a few seconds becomes a few minutes by, before you know it, half an hour or more has, has gone by and, uh, you've completely, uh, because of your unwillingness and your laziness and willing to change your position, all of a sudden your foot, is, is, your leg is completely asleep. Um, and, uh, you try to get up and move and, uh, all of a sudden something demands your attention you need to stand up and go and you can't and you're limping and you're and you're struggling and it's it's i think it's it's uh similar to that and now in in that this it's something that we put off and you put off and before you know it, it happens so quickly um and you're you're suddenly overpowered and unable to to uh to use your leg in the way that you you wanted to um and you might be saying to yourself at this point Yes, I can identify with giving in to the temptation of distraction and inaction in my work, but I'm not experiencing poverty. So this text doesn't apply to me. Nice try, Peter. Maybe next time pick a better proverb. To which I would say, rude. Um, But I would also say there's more types of poverty than economic poverty. Um, Yes, the, the context of the proverb is referring to uh, economics and encouraging work versus laziness. So that is one of the forms of poverty certainly being referred to here. Laziness and work will result in economic poverty, but this proverb invites us to be reflective of all aspects of our lives that might be experiencing the effects of our laziness. For instance, laziness in our relationships will result in a relational poverty. Laziness in physical activity will result in poverty of health. Laziness in our spiritual disciplines will lead to a spiritual poverty. And the list goes on. And notice here that Solomon is not saying that the inverse is true, that if you work hard, you will be economically rich. This isn't the health and wealth gospel. 
He's saying if you are lazy, you will be poor. And God doesn't promise us economic prosperity if we follow him. But just like there are more versions of poverty, um, just as there are more uh, various versions of poverty, there are also more versions of prosperity than just economic. There isn't just one for It's not just economic poverty that's out there. There's also not just economic prosperity. That's not the only metric. Um, as Westerners, we so often fall into the temptation to view, uh, to assess everything on the metric of economic success. We approach everything like a business. We think that is the way to judge uh, everything. And the beautiful thing about being human is that it is possible to flourish while economically poor. It is possible to flourish when sick or disabled. It is possible to flourish when you are marginalized or being persecuted. Because flourishing as humans happens when we reflect God's image well by being in right relationship to God, right relationship with our environment, and being in right relationship with our neighbors, and being in right relationship with ourselves. The temptation that affluence provides is to recede away from the realm of taking risk, to forego any real responsibility because that's only going to create stress and prevent me from enjoying my autonomy, my freedom. Our affluence pulls us in the direction of the Axiom ship from Wally, that spaceship, uh, where we can permanently just cruise in a loop to have every need met like adult babies. The reason so many of us so easily give in to this laziness in our work and other facets of our lives is that we really are afraid of loss. When we put ourselves out there and commit ourselves to something, we know we are losing something else. Perhaps our freedom, perhaps our time, perhaps our leisure. We don't want to risk losing that. We want to hold it close to our chest like, like Smog sitting on his pile of gold. We just want it for ourselves. That fear of loss, according to... Um, Christian scholar and author Andy Crouch is what robs us of flourishing fear of loss we are afraid we won't do it well so we put off doing that hard project at work uh, or at school we put off our homework we give in to distractions that pull us away from that work and as a result we do not grow and we do not flourish and the good news of the gospel is that we cannot and do not have to pull ourselves out of poverty. The answer here is not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is only Jesus and the spirit empowering his people who truly set us free from the mire of poverty. God is calling us forth in this text, calling us to turn around from the direction we are heading. He's t- telling us that true flourishing is not found on that ship on that spaceship it's not found in that leisurely way of life it is found in the faithful diligent application of the gifts he has given us to our to do our work and this is what andy crouch refers to as our image bearing calling this does not mean that we have no worth if we do not engage in economic worth it does not mean our work should define us It should not be our identity just as much as we should not withdraw from it out of laziness. Jesus says, in me you are significant, not because of your performance, not because of what you add or accomplish, but purely because of me. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Our justification in Christ frees us to simply put our gifts to use in work rather than to gain an identity from it. We no longer seek to be justified by our accomplishments because we, we all sit secure in the justification of Jesus Christ's work on the cross for us. But it doesn't stop there. Ephesians 2 continues with verse 10 after... Um, after verse 8 and 9, explaining that we are part of God's redemptive purposes here on earth. Jesus' accomplishments on the cross on our behalf is not the end of our story. It's the beginning of our new creation and of the new work we are called to engage in as part of God's redemptive purposes on this earth, which is why we are encouraged by the Apostle in Colossians 4, for example, to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And we are called to take that call seriously, to do that work diligently and faithfully, as if we did not have an overseer. And so, finally, in the spirit of Solomon's practicality, what are the practical ways to go forward from here? Well, we know that wisdom in work is to approach it with character, like the ant. Conducting our work in the right manner and in the right time, even when no one's looking. Character is often described as being what you do when no one is looking. And the original Greek word for character means stamp. The original view being that it was something that was stamped upon you by experience over time as you responded to various kinds of experiences in life. Thus we form and develop that character by habits and disciplines over time. Disciplines such as prayer, reading scripture, creating, engaging in nature, enjoying creation, and working. God has placed us here on earth in order to steward our gifts. He cares about our work, calls us to reflect his righteousness in the workplace, to be faithful and diligent in doing it well so that we may flourish and so that he may be glorified. So pray, church, that the Spirit may work in you to be more diligent and faithful in your work. Um, that you may not succumb to the temptation to withdraw from difficult work, but that the Spirit may work in you uh, the boldness to do your work faithfully and diligently, thereby loving God genuinely as we approach our work with wisdom. Our goal is not to board the endless leisure cruise of life. Resist the siren calls of our culture to commit to protect yourself from risk and encase yourself in leisure, but respond to the call of God to go forth, to enter into our work with boldness, willing to take risks, to be vulnerable and faithful, honoring him with our diligence so that he may be glorified and that you may flourish. Being made relationally right with God, being made relationally right with your work, your environment, being made relationally right with others, and being made relationally right with yourself. Amen. Let's pray together, church.